when I try and contemplate my life from the heart of depression, everything looks equally bad and I'm unable to find any message. I tend to treat depression more now, and this is a very un-Jungian thing to do, right? Is I treat it almost like I would treat getting a common cold. I give it almost no psychological attention. I often refer to it as like the emotional flu. And I do what I would do if I got the flu. I would make sure I'm taking care of myself. So in my case, am I getting enough sleep? Am I getting enough vitamin C? In my case, I'm like, am I exercising? Am I, am I talking to other people? Am I eating well? Am I sleeping well? I'll do those things. And then beyond that, I just try and let it take its course and go away. I don't actually turn it into big, deep existential questioning. Depression feels very physical to me, which is why I treat it that way. That's Eric Zimmer, and this is episode 320 of Wellness Force Radio. Wellness Force Radio, where we discover the physical and emotional intelligence to live life well. You can have the same brain states as someone who's done an hour of meditation every day for 40 years. There's a lot of losses that we go through, so the ability to be able to cope with those losses is very important to build skill in it, because loss will happen. You know, you have to have spiritual courage to really grow spiritually, because if you really want to take guidance from your soul, you have to be ready to realize that many of the things that you're asking for guidance on, your ego has some kind of an addiction to or an investment in. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Cured Nutrition. They live in Colorado. It's an organic farm company. They do full-spectrum hemp. It's 100% organically farmed. If you look it up on Google, there's like little cows running around. It's beautiful out there. It's got a wide variety of terpenes in all the parts of the plant, the full hemp plant that give our digestion, joints, and muscle tissues the relaxation that they deserve, especially after a hella stressful day. If you're from NorCal, you know what that means. I don't even know why I said that, but there's a lot of talk right now. There's a lot of talk about CBD and hemp. So I did research last year and we ended up partnering with Cured Nutrition. You can listen to the episode 300 with Joe, the founder. This company brings you the very best in the entire market. And I know this because I've been to Expo West, the different trade shows. They source organically farmed full-spectrum hemp, the kind of product you can give to your grandfather, your grandmother, your little boy or girl, your neighbor, just people that you care about. I know you're going to love this product. If you've been looking for a full-spectrum hemp solution, go to wellnessforce.com forward slash cured, C-U-R-E-D. Use the code wellnessforce. You get 15% off your order for cured nutrition over at wellnessforce.com forward slash cured for 15% off. Support the show and support yourself by giving yourself full-spectrum, organically-grown hemp. In today's podcast, we talk with Eric Zimmer, the host of the One You Feed podcast. He's a behavior coach. He's an author. This man is endlessly inspired. You're going to see his curiosity. You're going to feel it. You're going to understand why he has this quest for the greater understanding of how our minds work and how to intentionally create the lives we want to live. At age 24, this man was homeless. He was addicted to heroin. He was facing long jail sentences. But in the years since then, he's not only found a way to recover from addiction and build a life worth living, but he's reached millions of people through his podcast. 300 episodes, 13 million downloads. His show is incredible. He's interviewed many of the guests we've had on our podcast, like Mark Devine. And today you're going to learn how to really look at a new phase of mental health. We're going to talk about doing the work from a heart-centered place. We're also going to talk about depression being an emotional flu, 
why we take care of ourselves with love and care until it passes. And we explore Eric's equation for life. I love this. Suffering equals pain times resistance. We'll also talk about consciousness and oneness, why the mystery of life is what drives so many things. And we also talk about life-changing principles, why we're not lone wolves, and why we can feed the courage wolf. We can feed the wolf. From the parable with the Native American grandfather walking his son down the valley, we can choose that wolf of love. We can choose that wolf of joy. It comes down to the choice. And honoring the mystery, we also explore the four ways that an ancient shaman would have known you were sick. And we talk about Eric's mission in 2020, how he's beyond just a behavior coach, and why the past 20 years have shaped him into being this powerful conduit for human consciousness this year. Make sure you go to the show notes page at wellnessforce.com forward slash 320. And also, if you dig this podcast, if you like the information that we're putting out, if it resonates deep in your belly, share it with a friend. Share it with somebody you care about. It means a lot that you share this podcast. And can you do me a favor? If you love this podcast, if you've been connecting with me, I feel like I'm really talking to you right now. Leave us a five-star review. Wellnessforce.com forward slash review. Let us know the kind of guests you want to have on, who you want to see in the future, what you want us to talk about, where you want us to go. This movement is nothing without you. This mission is nothing without us. So let us know how you feel. It supports the show. We can rise up in the algorithms for iTunes and we can beat the dark media forces with this light. Wellnessforce.com forward slash review, or just go to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Let's talk with Eric Zimmer. Let's figure out the one you feed and let's feed that wolf right here, right now on Wellness Force. Eric Zimmer, welcome to Wellness Force. Hey, Josh, thanks for having me. I've been looking forward to this because we all tell stories in life and really your mission with the one you feed is built upon probably one of the most profound stories out there. And it's the Native American grandfather who's talking to his son and his son is asking him about wolves and he's saying there's two wolves. One of them is anger and fear and despair. The other one is love, connection, trust. And the the grandson asks his grandfather, you know, well, which wolf would win in a battle? And the grandfather says, the one you feed. And I've told that story multiple times. I've heard it multiple times, but you have built this brand on this story and really this mission about giving people the power of choice. So just a true honor to have you on the show. And I got to tell you, the biggest curious question for me is when did this parable come to you? Was there a point in your life where somebody fed you the love wolf, the joy wolf? What happened to make this story come through for you to build this movement on top of it? Well, the time between when I first heard the story and I started the podcast was a long time. But I first heard the story early in recovery from heroin addiction. And, um, you know, it just landed on me really strongly. Then it was really clear to me like, okay, I've got a pretty clear choice here. You know, if I do these sort of actions, and it was pretty clear what I was supposed to do. If you do this, if you do this, if you do that, that's going to lead towards recovery and health and all things that are good. And if I don't and I continue doing what I'm doing, that's going to lead to death and jail and all the other bad stuff. So it felt really clear to me, you know. And I think the thing about that parable that's so good is when you hear it, you immediately get it. Everyone gets it. Yeah, That's what makes a parable good, right? Mm -hmm. It tells a little story and you're like, boom, oh, okay, wow, that's really, really says a lot. And so um, it, it registered strongly 
with me, I sometimes joke, I'm not even sure I was feeding the bad wolf anymore so much as the bad wolf was eating me at that point in my life. But <laughs> you were being eaten alive. Yeah. Yeah. Who yeah, asked you though? Sure. Was it, was it like a mentor or, or was it somebody that you were looking up to or was it a friend who told you the story? It, it was just, I, I, I don't know. It was, I mean, I was in, I was in 12 step recovery. And so people are just, you know, sharing all during meetings and, you know, and somebody just told that story. I haven't, I yeah. couldn't begin to tell you who. Ah, that's powerful because sometimes the messages that come through, we don't even remember where they came from, but they just stick. Yeah. <laughs> they stick yeah, in there. Sure. And you're a behavior coach. You, you host a podcast. It's one of the biggest podcasts out there. And honestly, some of the guests you've had on there are, are dear friends of mine, like Mark Devine, and just learning from these men and women who have gone through the gauntlet themselves. And that's what you've done. We have a lot to talk about, man. You know, just beyond your TEDx, the battle of changing behavior and really these segments of anxiety and then addiction and, and then the solutions, you know, the meditation and the way that you help people with your clarity process. But before we dig into that, I mean, let's, let's go back to why you even think that heroin came into your life. Many people, whether you follow Gabor Maite's work or the hungry ghosts, go to addictive things because they feel a disconnection from self. They don't feel at home in their body. Uh, was that the case for you? I mean, were you not feeling at home in your body? What, what actually led you looking back to addiction, to heroin? Yeah, I, I, I buy that theory that, that it's some form of disconnection. I don't know if I would have articulated at home in my body as the way I would have put it, but at home in the world, I would say I didn't. And sure. I had, I think I had depression from early on. I don't think I knew it then. Um, and I, I, you know, basically what led me to heroin was, was the fact that like, just like a lot of kids, I, I experimented with drugs and alcohol. And for me, it did something different to me. And I was kind of off to the races with it. Right. And so started out pretty, pretty simple and ended pretty, you know, pretty, pretty low bottom for me. Right. I was, yeah. I was a homeless heroin addict. I was, I weighed a hundred pounds. I had multiple, uh, felonies facing me, you know, grand theft, forgery, lots of, you know, I was looking at going to jail for a long time. So it was a pretty low bottom for me. Um, but you know, I think I could, I could speculate on this happened to me as a kid and I know lots of different things that happened, but I think that theory of being disconnected is a pretty good one. Yeah. And the disconnection starts because of either the environment we're in, or maybe they we're not supported by parental figures, you know, or yep. there could be a soul contract too. I mean, this is curious. And, and this is why I love having conversations with other podcasters, because the way in which you've been able to interview people and pull out the nuggets is fascinating to me. It's an art form that I love being in the mastery of. And I'm curious for you, like with all these guests that you've been interviewing, do your, does your story or does your path align with anyone? In other words, have you seen your story be a mirror of somebody that you've had on your show that's uh, inspired you? For sure. I've definitely interviewed, a, you know, a decent number of people who have dealt with addiction uh, issues in their own life. I've dealt, you know, I've interviewed a good number of people who've dealt with depression in their own lives. Um, so, yeah, I mean, a lot of my guests are a mirror and I might say all of them to some degree, like I don't have anybody on who I'm not deeply interested in. Like if I don't look at their work and it doesn't resonate with me in some way, then I just don't have them on the show regardless of who they are or so. So I feel a resonance with really every Everyone. Yeah, this resonance is because we're all the same. Do you have a spiritual path that you connect with most? In other words, do you believe in high, higher intelligence? Uh, do you have a God in your life? Like, what's that connection mm -hmm. to you that drives you? I would say um, 
most recently I have been on a pretty, um, I've been on a Zen Buddhist path most recently. That's kind of what first interested me spiritually when I was a teenager. And it's kind of what I found my way back to in between there, all kinds of, you know, spiritual, but not religious. But I would say that my main, um, leanings are towards a Buddhist view of the world and an understanding of the world. Um, and you know, whether we believe in higher intelligence, um, in a sense, yes. Yeah. What do you mean in a sense? Well, Buddhism doesn't postulate, you know, Buddhism doesn't postulate there being a God. So, um, and Buddha and, and my understanding of Buddhism doesn't postulate that there is a, um, personal intelligence out there that's working in the world. Like, I don't believe there's some external force that intervenes in my life. Yes. However, I do believe that the world seeing, I mean, obviously possesses incredible intelligence because how we got from being, um, you know, everything that we see around us was at one point in time collapsed into the size of something that you could have fit a million of into in a period of an end of a sentence. And now we have everything and all this and the vast diversity and all that. There's clearly crazy intelligence yeah. at work. There's something right? going on. There's something yeah. breathes us. Something's breathing you. You don't have to breathe yourself. Yeah. Right. Right. And so in that sense, yes, I just don't know that I'm a believer in that that thing has a particular, um, it seems to have a direction towards increasing complexity. That seems to be, if I was going to say that the universe had a direction, that appears to be the direction. And I believe in that. Yeah, that resonates with me too. I, I think about the way that we treat one another in the world. I can remember, Eric, like being a young kid, uh, I was in an environment where it, my parents did the best they could. And I've done a lot of work to really understand how much I truly love them. Um, but just seeing the way that their parents treat were treated and then their grandparents, and it's just this big cycle of how yeah. people treat each other. I know that behavior change and human relations is a massive topic that you pour over on the One You Feed podcast. And what comes up for me in just looking at this broad spectrum of your work is, was it, was it like that for you in your environment growing up? Did your parents have a limited emotional intelligence skill set, or what was that like for you? I mean, cause this is really the lens of which you speak through on your podcast now. Yeah, pretty limited, uh, intelligent, uh, or emotional intelligent skill set. I would say neither of them, that was really an interest to theirs. It's, I'm, it's kind of a mystery quite where I, where I came from because I'm not very, <laughs> I mean, I'm like them in some ways. I think they both battled depression in their lives. Um, so I think I inherited that sort of naturally, but my yeah. general curiosity and, and seeking nature and wondering and all that, that just doesn't really seem to be a, I don't see that never seen that in either of them. So I'm not quite sure where that comes from. Um, but yeah, definitely, you know, all the sort of standard things that, that today we know, well, you might not want to raise a child that way. Right. I, I had a lot of those. Right. And, and like you said, it comes from their parents, which yeah. comes from their parents. I mean, it just, it just rolls downhill. This is learned behavior and there's many things out there like memes. The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Oh, it's in my genetics. But we understand now, man, there's so much fascination and so much deep science about epigenetics. You know, the things that get turned on and off when we're in environments and environments are the people. So if we're around assholes, it's pretty easy for us to feel depressed. And right. I can look at the way that you lead people through coaching and I can only imagine the types of 
real life challenges that people use to gather evidence for as to why they can't be their highest actualized self. Is there a thread for all of us? Is it really come down to self-love? I feel like the more I'm in this world of wellness, most self-sabotage and most behavior change obstacles come down to people not actually feeling love for themselves. Would you agree with that or do you have other insight? I think that there is a lot of truth in that. I think that the reasons that people don't actualize who they want to be in life are, there's a lot of different reasons. Um, but lack of self-love is, is a really big one. Um, it's definitely, it, it's up there. I don't know that I ever have sat back and really tried to catalog, like what's the, what's the biggest thing. I mean, the, the, some of the stuff I see in behavior change with people, I would say comes down to just basic skills, like knowing how to go about changing a behavior and sustaining it. Like those are basic skills. And I, and in a lot of cases, they don't have anything to do with self-love or any of that stuff. They're just about, do you have the skill set? And so when I work with people in coaching, we, we sort of take it two ways. We start with the skill set. And then when we see how far that takes us, and then that gives us an opportunity to dig deeper into the things that I would, I, I refer to it sort of as emotional regulation. Like in what ways are my emotions getting in the way of me doing what it is that I want to do or being who it is I want to be in the world. And so I start kind of, like I said, with, with skill set, things I'd call very tactical. Mm -hmm. And then we use that to move us into deeper waters. Yeah. And in the deeper waters, I mean, this is where really my curiosity lives is in the deep down, because I understand the processes of behavior change. You know, whether you look at BJ Fogg's work or Charles Duhigg or Nir Ayal, you look at all these people that yep. develop fascinating systems, even Dan Party. You know, Dan Party talks about this space between knowing and doing. We've had him on the show three times. And that space between knowing and doing, there's something else there. There is this sixth element. There is this factor that plays in people having the strategies, having the coach, having the thing that'll actually give them the information and the knowledge and the intelligence to move forward, bust through their block. There's something else though, Eric, that there's like this, I almost want to say like emotional potpourri or like a spiritual potpourri. There's something else where people just decide that they're willing to go through the suck. Yeah. They're willing to yeah. go through it. What is that? I don't know. I don't have the foggiest idea, to be honest with you. It's one of you the great mysteries. About, right? No, I do. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, you know, I look at my, uh, addiction is a big lens for me and, and I look at a lot, I look at life and I am very mystified. Why am I sober today? And so many other people I know aren't, they're mm. dead, they're gone, they're not sober. And, and I can give a superficial explanation and that superficial explanation was, well, I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this and I did this. And they only did two of those things. Yeah. But that doesn't answer why was I willing to do those things? Why did I continue to do those things? Why was I able to see the gravity of my situation? And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, this, this is a, this question sort of haunts me cause I don't, but I, I, I don't think it's a question that lends itself to easy answers. You know, speaking of like Gabor Mate, I sort of had this conversation with Gabor Mate a little bit around, you know, this idea of, you know, he's very much focused on harm reduction. Like, well, if I can get somebody to go from using heroin seven days a week to two days a week, that's pretty good. Mm -hmm. And I would go, yeah, I think that is good. I come from an abstinence model, which was, you know, for me, I needed, you know, it was full abstinence that allowed my life to unlock. And I sort of asked him, like, is that asking too much of people? And he said, for some people, yes. 
And I said, well, who like, are, aren't you selling some people short then in that case? And he said, well, some people are just so damaged that their options are less than yours or mine. And that's a, that's a difficult truth to swallow. And I'm not sure that I fully swallow it, but but there's some truth in it. You know, I, I can see this in, in, you know, the more, the more trauma somebody has had in their life, the more likely they are to have uh, serious uh, substance abuse problems. Like the science is just unequivocal on that. So yeah, yeah. I, I don't think these answers are, I don't think there are clear answers. And then you, but then you'll see somebody who's gone through just stunningly horrific trauma who is way, way ahead of me. I mean, and so I just don't, I don't understand fully. Right. And I think that it's a, it's one of those mysteries and it's a mystery that makes me honestly sort of profoundly uncomfortable because since I don't understand it and since it does, and since it's so personal, cause like I said, I know lots of people that I've been, you know, I've sat in meetings with that I've spent lots of time with who are dead today. You know, they're not, it's not that they're not getting out of bed and doing their morning routine up to hell Elrod standard, right? They're dead. Yeah. And so, you know, so yeah, it, it is there. You're right. There is some mystery underneath all this that, um, if any of us could crack consistently, we'd be richer than God. <laughs> Man, this really touched something in me and, and I can feel energetically it touched something in you too, because you yeah, mentioned a lot, yeah. of, a lot of the people that you have seen do the work, like actually do the work. It's not like they were avoiding it. I mean, they were wholeheartedly right. pouring themselves into it and they're not here anymore. And there yeah. is this honoring of the mystery. And I'll never forget this. Um, I was talking to uh, a gentleman who's been on the show. He's a mentor of mine. His name is Paul Chack. And he said in the, in the old days, when people would go to the shamans, they would they would be sick and the shaman would ask them four questions when did you stop singing when did you stop dancing when did you stop spending time alone and when did you stop telling stories when did you stop wow. understanding the stories that one could tell one another and it's interesting mm-hmm. to me because you know a lot of your brand is built on this powerful story of the two wolves and i can see now in our society the time for storytelling why podcasts are so popular and why people are so damn hungry for the truth is because we're all kind of shaking our heads at this mystery yeah yep i i agree 100% and i think that i love that idea of asking those those four questions you know what i would love to you know, at different times, I'd love to see something like, you know, we, we have so much more data about everything now. Like, I'd love to see like shamanic success rates back in <laughs> year, yeah. year 900, right? Or, right. or, you know, it's just, it's, it's just, it's all very fascinating. Yeah. But I, I think it is, it is, there is a mystery to it. And I think as much as, and you named some people, you know, BJ Fogg, James Clear, you know, Charles Duhigg, all Mm -hmm. these people who you're right, they've done this incredible work on systems. And I think those systems are really important and they're a big part of it. And yet, there is an element of mystery that goes way beyond that. Uh, and sometimes for all of us, it's just the surrender to the mystery and not trying to white knuckle it and fight it. You know, I think I've had many people on the show that have either been through recovery or some sort of program, but there is something very powerful about the way that Alcoholics Anonymous helps people on a global scale. Is that something you're still involved in to this day? Are you in any programs now? I would consider myself, you know, I guess a member of AA, but I don't attend it very often. I mean, I, I have a, I have 12 step programs saved my life twice and they save the lives of a lot of people I know, and they don't work for a good number of people also. And 
I don't know, you know, it's, you can debate kind of why that is also. Um, but yes, I think, I think I, I have a, I have a love of AA. I think there are some things that I would love to see 12 step programs do better, but at their heart, they are, there's nothing else quite like them ever created in the world. You mentioned this, which was really cool success rate for shamans. Yeah. <laughs> if that would have been possible, right? That'd be really cool to see like a graph of who's the best shaman. Um, but, but, <laughs> but a lot of tools that shamans use, you know, drumming, singing, dancing, plant medicines, breath work. These are very, for some people, uh, woo woo, real, real fucking woo woo. I mean, it's yeah. like people don't want to go to the Amazon and drink medicine. Personally, I've been through dozen, a dozen or more ceremonies of ayahuasca, many, many breath work ceremonies, and they've helped me a lot. You know, they've allowed me to be here fully present and connect with you and serve our community. How has that worked for you? Have you done any types of plant medicines or breath work that have really realigned you when you might've felt off course? I have not. Um, I did, uh, you know, what we would consider plant medicine or at least, you know, uh, psychedelic substances, if we want to use that term. Um, I know that's a term that's not in as much in favor when I was younger, you know, early twenties and, and I was doing it recreationally. And I will say that yeah. they were very profound experiences, even in that context, even in the context of like, I'm just doing this to hang out and have fun. There was a profound aspect to them. I have not done them um, yet again as an adult, although it's something I'm somewhat interested in. Um, and as a, as a former addict, though, I tread carefully around yeah. that stuff, even though I know that in a lot of cases, there seems to be some data that show that these substances actually can help cure addiction. I just know anything that makes me feel uh, radically different than I feel is something that I could I run the risk of gravitating to really, really uh, more frequently than I should. But I am intrigued. I am certainly intrigued by the degree to which these things seem to be able to do a psychological shakeup and a reframing of things in, in what's potentially a powerful way. Man, that is so honest. And I'm flashing back uh, Luke's story, who we've had on the show, and I've been on his show. He, I, I helped him go down to Rhythmia Life Advancement Center, and he, I think, he was 20 years in the program, and so he had similar concerns. But what he found personally was this has nothing to do with taking drugs or going to a place where someone's losing control. It actually just took him back to what you and I were talking about with honoring the mystery. And being yep. okay in the mystery space. And that, I think, for all of us, if, if we can, no matter how stressful our lives are or what we're going through, I mean, people are dealing with real challenges, some of which the hardest things we could ever imagine. But but going to these ceremonies, and, and specifically what Luke was sharing, was that he went to a place where he, he saw why everything had unfolded the way that it did. I mean, it was like looking back on life's timeline and seeing massive clarity. Is that mm -hmm. something that really might draw you in the future towards uh, going that route potentially with, with plant medicines, looking back and seeing the clarity. I don't know that that appeals to me, although maybe if it happened, it would. I feel like, I feel like my life has a clarity to me, um, looking back over it, that I'm kind of like, it, it feels like it's sort of, I kind of, it feels like it has a coherent narrative to me. I think more interestingly to me is my my Buddhist practice, my Zen practice is really about oneness experiences. Um, it's about it's about mysticism. It's about unity. You know, the the core of of Zen Buddhism is like, well, things just aren't separate in the way they seem like they're separate. And I've experienced that. I've had awakening experiences 
without using any substance that have shown me that. Um, but I'm intri- that that intrigues me. That that's the part that intrigues me more, as well as I'm very intrigued by some of the data that seems to show that some of these substances are effective at depression, because that's something that still creeps up in my life from time to time. It's still something that's sort of there. I feel like compared to where it once was, it's completely different, but it's a salient factor of my life. And so I think I'm more interested in what it, what it means from, uh, in regards to my spiritual practice and my spiritual understanding, as well as from a depression perspective. God, this brings up a huge question for me. And, um, it's, I've been dabbling into a lot of Carl Jung this year. One of my favorite quotes from him is until you make the unconscious conscious, it'll rule your life and you'll call it fate. And, and gosh, I, I understand that on a logistical level, on a brain level, on a heart level, There are some times in my life, and I think most people can relate to this, where we do want to welcome in the sadness. We want to welcome in the despair. We want to welcome in whatever the darkness is because it's like, hey, it's there whether we want to look at it or not. So why don't we just welcome it in, have dinner with it, see what it wants, give it love, and then send it on its way. But I think I I feel triggered when it comes around too much. And I'm like, hey, you were just here last week. (laughs) You know, can, can you take off this week? Like, how do you deal with this model in your life of welcoming in and and looking at the shadow, doing work in the Uh shadow versus having the, the will and the strength to let the shadow go and to not even focus on it. And even sometimes meeting that shadow with anger. How do you deal with that duality in your own life? Oh, that's a great question. And I don't think there are I don't think there's simple, boy, that seems to be the, I, I could just sum this whole interview up. There aren't simple answers. Um, I keep saying that. <laughs> it's going back but, to the mystery, Eric. But, but it's because you're asking really pretty profound questions that just don't, that don't have um, a simple answer. So I'll, 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 I'll answer that a couple of different ways. I'll start by saying, for me, there's a difference between what I recognize as depression and what I would call um, a lot of other negative emotions, quote unquote negative emotions. And depression for me more than anything else is a deadness. It's not a, it's not a sadness. It's not an anger. It's not a darkness. It's just like all the lights get turned down to like 10% inside me. I mean, that's a, and so the, the problem with that and, and I ask this question to, to people that I interview often or, or, or if I ask, I might ask it outside the, the interview, but I'll often just say like a lot of other emotional states, you can turn towards them and they all, there, there's something to go into, you know, sadness, there's a place to go, fear, there's something to go into, anxiety, yeah. but depression, there's, and, and what I've heard I've gotten this answer a bunch of times. Depression's really tough because there's not even enough energy in it to activate anything. Mm, that's profound. Right. Yep. And so, so for me, I, I have stopped at least for now, and this could change, but in general, I have stopped really looking closely at, does my depression have some sort of deeper cause? Because I, I've looked at that a ton of times and I can't seem to find any answer that makes any sense. Or, um, I do know that there are things I can do that make it less likely that I'll suffer depression. And if I do that, it will be less deep. And those things are very often, very much physical things, their exercise, their diet, um, they're connecting with other people. They're keeping moving some of those things. So I tend to treat depression more now, and this is a very un- uh, Jungian thing to do, right? Is I treat it almost like I would treat getting a common cold. 
Like I give it almost no psychological attention. Mm -hmm. I, I, I often refer to it as like the emotional flu. And I do what I would do if I got the flu. I would make sure I'm taking care of myself. So in my case, you know, if I got the flu, I might say, well, am I getting enough sleep? Am I getting enough vitamin C? Um, in my case, I'm like, am I exercising? Am I, am I talking to other people? Am I eating well? Am I sleeping well? I'll do those things. And then beyond that, I just try and let it just ride. I just let it uh, take its course and go away. Yeah. I don't actually turn it into big, deep existential questioning. <laughs> That is one very solid way to look at it. And I'm even, I love the way you said depression is like an emotional flu. It's like we take loving care of ourselves until it passes. You know, this too shall pass. I don't know who said yep. that. Probably some ancient master. This right, too shall right. pass, my friends. But there is some element of this where we're half beast and we're half spirit, Eric, right? We're, yes. we're, you're, there'll never be another Eric Zimmer ever. Like you're, the, you're a soul with a unique expression. There'll never be another Josh Trent. So something inside of us, this duality, this yin yin, Yang. It, there's something about, and, and Lao Tzu talks about this a lot. There's something about just meeting and embracing the dark and just letting it be there and, and not yeah. making it a big deal and just moving on with life. And eventually that darkness will either teach us a lesson or it'll, it'll go away. Do you find that to be true in your own life too? I do. And I think I arrived at treating depression the way I treat it. And, and Please, I want to be clear. I'm not saying this is the way other people should treat it, yeah. nor that it will always be the way that I treat it, right? I don't know. It's just that I felt like when I'm in that state, I have tried to mine it for what it has to tell me, and I can't find anything. Mm -hmm. I just, what I end up with, I, I, and again, the analogy I make to, I think is useful to being sick. Like if you're sick, or here's another, this is actually a more useful example that more people will relate to. Like a lot of times if you're awake at three in the morning, the world looks really ghastly and you can start to be afraid about all kinds of things. And you wake up in the morning, you're like, oh God, none of it's, it's not that bad. Like, I, was just, sun is. I was just awake at three in the morning and it was not a great time to be awake. And, and, you know, it wasn't a great time to be contemplating my life. And I, I feel similar with this. When I try and contemplate my life from the heart of depression, everything looks equally bad, and I'm and I'm unable to 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 find any message. Um, and also, I did a lot of work earlier in my life. You know, twelve step work, doing working the steps. You know, a lot of therapy, a lot a lot of digging, a lot of digging, so that I feel like mostly I've unearthed the 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 harder things that might be causing depression depression feels very physical to me which is why i treat it that way um but so i think that can be a real i think it can be a really helpful model for people i certainly think regardless of regardless of whether you want to sort of treat it as a as an emotional flu like i do or you want to try and mine it for more information i do think that what you said there about laozo Laozu and the general idea is that resistance isn't helpful. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I often uh, quote, um, I can't even remember who said it, but I use the, I say this on the show all the time, suffering equals pain times resistance. And so, you know, I know that if depression is my pain, if I, the more I resist it and it shouldn't be this way, it shouldn't be this way, the more I suffer. Mm. And when I can just sort of let it be what it is, it's not that the pain isn't there. It's just that I don't make it worse. And so, and, and I've, I've over the, 
over the last several years, I've come up with a somewhat unromantic notion that sometimes the best we can do in certain situations is not make them worse. There are times that we are, we are emotionally hijacked to an extent, or we're in a place that the, the options to make it a whole lot better in that moment are not great. But what we can do is not make it worse until the moment passes and then we can engage it healing at a different time. And you can see this, a lot of couples will see this in their life, and you can also see it with a little child. There's a time where a little child crosses a point of being upset and angry that no amount of reasoning with the child, no amount of lesson teaching with the child, none of it's going to work. All yeah. you got to do is get the child to calm down. Mm -hmm. And 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 I think a lot of – I've been in relationships like this. You see this with couples a lot. A, a, a point gets passed in a fight where nothing good is going to come. Yep. Nothing. And so all that there is to do in that moment is like how in this moment – I can't, I can't make it better in this moment, right? Like I can't teach my child not to throw a temper tantrum when he's at this state. So what I'm going to do right now is not make it worse. And then I'll look for a teaching moment later. And, and I often feel this way with our own emotional challenges is not making them worse. And I said it's somewhat unromantic, but if you look at to the extent that a lot of us can make our lives worse <laughs> – yeah. <laughs> by our emotions. It's not a small, it's not a small feat to, 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 to be able to refrain from making things worse. Man, man, there's a lot to unpack there. So you, you talked about the, the sickness, the flu analogy, which I love. I have actually never heard that. This is really phenomenal to me because if depression is an emotional flu and we're taking care of ourselves, we still got the flu for a certain reason, whether we're in the wrong environment or it's flu season, or we're not taking care of ourselves, pain or flu or depression, aren't these all just guideposts? Aren't these all just uh, reflection points for us to take an emotional inventory? In other words, to, to guide ourselves away from pain, pain becomes the teacher. I think that's a useful analogy, but I only think it goes so far. And, and, and I'll tell you what I mean by that, because I think that if we're not careful, what we do is we turn really legitimate pain that people experience into nothing more than a universal lesson. And I think that cheapens it. And I think that like, you know, somebody, you know, to, to be graphic and terrible about it, somebody right now is being raped, right? As we talk, yep. like I don't like to position that as a guidepost for them in their own healing. Now, can they use that experience? Sure. But should they have to? Probably not, at least yeah. in my view of the world. And so I'm always really hesitant to turn – I'm always hes hesitant to turn what I see as legitimate, unescapable pain in, in people's lives into – something better. Again, I'm a firm believer that in my life, I have turned all my disadvantages into advantages for myself. Yeah. But I don't like to believe that they ha that it happens that way for quote unquote a reason. And, and so I'm always a little bit hesitant. The other thing I, I worry about too, is I think we have the, 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 the spiritual world in particular, we have a tendency if we're not careful to it, for me, to try and become something completely different than human. And what I mean by that is we try and get to a place that every, every, um, we just don't, there's no more bad or suffering or any of that anymore. And I think that part of life is that sometimes it just hurts to be a human. Absolutely. You being, know? being a human can be so challenging and so rewarding. Yeah, exactly. And so I do agree with you on, 
on on a on I, I totally agree on one level and then on another level I only like to go so far with that if that yeah, makes sense. It makes sense. And I think really what the you know the edges of our conversation really point towards the universal solution. And I'm not gonna paint a picture and say this is gonna happen in our lifetimes, but we're moving in this direction. And what I feel is this whether you look at Buddhism or whether you look at any religion, the good parts of any religion, the good parts of any faith, they're all pointing towards unity consciousness. They're all pointing towards oneness experiences, like you said. And I think if we all know that, if we're aware of that, whether, whether we're logical or whether we're spiritual, if we all can get to a point in humanity where we are all aware that we are one, we're stopping this illusion of separation. We're treating people with love and kindness as if we'd treat ourselves that's really where we're, we're working towards as a society. And I think the depressions, the sicknesses, and really the, the, the blackness that some of us go through in life, I think these will occur less frequently. I don't think they'll ever stop in our lifetime or in humanity's existence, but there has to be a better way, Eric. I mean, there has to be a better way for us to, to live. You know? no, no, no argument there. And I think that's a, I think that's a beautiful vision. And I think it is, um, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of truth to that. There is a whole lot of, of, um, suffering in the world that seems wholly, uh, optional. And what I mean yes. by optional, as in it doesn't have to be that way. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think what's, I think what's interesting is, and it's why I like that, that sort of um, suffering equals pain times resistance. I love that idea because it makes a difference between pain and suffering, right? And pain, like here, I'll give you a great, a great example of my own life. So within one year, a couple years ago, I had to put two dogs to sleep and I, I loved them. I mean, at a, at a, you know, at a way probably, you know, like a dog lover would, right? They sure. were fundamental to my life. I had to put two of them to sleep, right? Mm. And so that was an enormously painful experience. Like I cried a ton and I almost feel like anything short of that would not be like real life. Like I love them. The cost of love sometimes is pain, like losing the dog. But what I didn't have was I wouldn't consider I suffered over it. And, and, and the distinction I would make there is I just took the pain for what it was. Something I loved isn't here. I miss it. But I didn't go into, oh, it's not fair. Oh, why did he have to get cancer? Mm-hmm. Why has it happened to, to me in one year? Like, that's so terrible. Like, I didn't add anything to the pain. I just took the pain for what it was, which felt to me like an, a, a totally noble human emotion. And so I just, and so that's the sort of stuff that I don't see going away that I don't think goes away, but I don't think that that is the problem, right? I think like you're saying, I think that if we had a world where the pain that we got was just the sort of pain you got when somebody was sick or someone you loved passed. And to your point, even understanding universal consciousness makes that better. I don't know that even my understanding of universal consciousness would still make me not sad that my dog's not here with me, even though I, you know, like I know on some level he's not gone and, but on another level, he absolutely is gone, right? Like (laughs) from, from my day to day experience, he's not here. And so, so I think that I agree with you a hundred percent that I think that that unity consciousness and all this, we, there's so much harm that we inflict on each other and that we inflict on ourselves with our own mind and our own stories and our own things that can be, 
that can and God, I hope, does get better and eliminated over time. And then I think the, the, the nature of being a living creature has some degree of pain in it. But I don't see that as a problem. I see that as just part of it's the, the rules of the game. And I don't see them as bad. Yeah, it's really touching. Uh, I'm feeling a lot of emotion from your story because I think everyone can connect right now to somebody that they love that's not here anymore, whether it's a pet or a family member or anyone else. And that is the universal human shared suffering that I experienced actually in, in Mark Devine's event, you know, the 20 X you do this 14 hour crucible, Eric, they're spraying you with water. It's like this Navy seal training and all of our shit comes up. Like, I don't care. I don't care who you are. Like when you're cold and tired and hungry, it's all the things that flare the ego that just make the darkness even darker. And what I got the most from that entire event was that, Oh, we're all suffering together. It's yes. the shared suffering that when we're, when we're pierced with the blade of adversity, that's where the blood of gratitude and of love for ourselves and the other people around us can actually come through. And that I think is what exactly you're talking about. Life is going to present us with some really challenging things, things that, that can make our blood run cold, things that make us so sad, but that is yeah. actually the richness. It's this emotional bandwidth. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. The emotional bandwidth that we really operate in as a human being. Can we ever experience ecstatic joy if we haven't explored our shadow? Is that even possible? That's a great question. I don't, I don't think in any sort of lasting way, no. You know, and this is a question that, that I have asked and I, I remain, and I don't have an, I don't have a good answer for, but I have, I have talked to some people who consider themselves, you know, quote unquote, awakened people, you know, spiritual teachers who are like, I have, I have awoken, you know, I have seen the true reality. And so I'm always like, well, what is that kind of consciousness like? Mm -hmm. What's it like to be like that? Like, you, you know, you, you, you know, one of, one of the people is a teacher, Adi Ashanti, who I admire enormously. I've interviewed him a bunch of times for the show and I've, I just think he's brilliant. And, and, um, you know, I've had some conversations with him about this. I'm like, well, what, what, what is this? You know, we're all talking about getting to this unity consciousness, this awakening. Well, what's that like if you're there, if, you know, for people who say they sort of live there. Right. And I hear different answers from different people. I hear some people say like, well, nothing ever bothers you again. And I'm like, well, God, that just seems like, is that really even being human at that point? Like, I, I don't know, because if nothing bothers you, how can you be, you know, how happy necessarily can you be? I don't know. Yep. Maybe, and, and maybe that's just a dualistic view in my mind. Adi Shanti said something once that really resonated with me. And to me, this embodies what I want it to be about. I don't know if it is, but it's what I want it to be about. And he said that awakening gives you the freedom to feel things, not the freedom from feeling things. And I thought that was kind of powerful because what he was saying was that that he he's he's better able to feel the full range of human emotion as someone who's seen the full thing. So you're 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 able to to feel it deeper. And I think that's a really interesting interesting idea versus maybe some other people who are like, well, yeah, no, nothing ever bothers you again. And I'm kind of like, well, that that seems I'm not even sure that's really, that just sounds kind of numb. I don't mm. know. Um, and I don't know the answers to these yeah. things. I think they're very fascinating questions. I know that when, 
I've had awakening experiences that were pretty profound and lasted for a certain amount of time. What I will say is that about, it seemed to me about 90% of the psychological suffering I carried was gone. Yeah. Just gone. It, it was a different, it was a different way of being, you know? Um, and so I do believe that, you know, we, it's, it's funny. This makes me think of, um, Someone asked me recently or somebody was saying to me recently, like, well, you know, aren't you worried about becoming too mindful? Like people can't be mindful all the time. Like that's not the – and I said, well, no, I don't think the goal is to be mindful all the time. Obviously, there's a time You can for, be mindful about not being mindful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And and yeah. there's a time just to be planning and thinking and, and we could argue yeah. that's mindful in a way. And I said, but sure. for me, for me, it's like I'm maybe mindful 1% of the time. I've got like 98% to go before I really need to worry about it. Like I feel like the, I, I, I really need to work on the other end of the equation before I start worrying about being too mindful, <laughs> Right. you know, yeah. and, and, and a similar idea, I think before I need, before any of us need to worry of running out of grist for the mill, mm. you know, yeah. there's, there's plenty of it. But I do think that, um, I do think that to sort of in a very long way, answer your question that, um, the broader range of human emotions is probably uh, better for us. I think so. One of the things that really compels me is this curiosity piece. And you even talked about it earlier in our conversation where you don't really know where your curiosity came from because you didn't necessarily see it in your parental examples. And I feel the same way. I'm like, man, I, I have been this spark of curiosity all day long since I could literally remember <laughs> taking my first breath. And, right. and I think for some people, I, I remember um, there was an interview that Larry King was being interviewed and he said, I'm just always been curious. I've always just been curious, Josh. I don't know what it is. And I thought me too, <laughs> you know, like me too. Yeah. Like that, That's always been my, my primary motivator. And I think I'd love to hear what you feel about this. Do you, do you think in some way that the spark of curiosity is actually the whole one of the whole purposes of life, to be curious, to be in a state of wonder. It's how children come into the world. It's how people live older. If you look at the interviews of centenarians, they're all curious still. Do you feel like the cultivating curiosity is really a way to achieve fulfillment and even to have a samadhi experience? Yes, absolutely. You know, you first phrase that of whether, you know, being curious is, I think you might have said is part of the the purpose or, and again, I, purpose doesn't resonate with me in the same way, but sure. I do think that curiosity is one of the key traits that unlocks so many of the things that most of us would say are worth having in life, whether that be awakening, whether that be fascination, whether that be awe, whether that be wonder. Curiosity is a remarkably good way, too, of lessening our own emotional pain. The more curious we can become about it, the, the better able we are to take a step away from it and look at it in broader and new ways. So I, I'm a huge fan of curiosity. I think it's really important. And it, it makes me think of when you mentioned, when we were talking about depression earlier and I said that the lights kind of go down, that's one of my first signs. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, I'm all of a sudden like, I can't think of any music I want to listen to. I can't think of any book that sounds good to read. And that is like the polar opposite of me normally. Like put me in a room where there's a bookshelf and like, I can't almost focus on anything else till I know what's on it. Like <laughs> that's my nature, you know? And, and yet when, when depression creeps up on me, that kind of goes away. And that's for me where I kind of, I feel it. It's, it's, it's one of my, 
It's one of my warning signs. Oh, the analogy is big for me right now because we can set up our lives so that we don't get the flu. And we can maybe set up our lives and stack the environment in our favor so that we can have depression less often. But I think a lot of it comes to this awareness practice you're talking about where it's like, hey, if I'm noticing my curiosity is gone and I've noticed there's some other things that are typically there that are gone and I can't pinpoint a reason, it's okay to give myself permission to just take loving care of myself and not try to figure out why I'm depressed, rather just focus on the other side of the coin. Is that a strategy that you implement in your own life to literally focus on the other side? Totally, totally. Yeah, I think so. And it that just made me think the way you said that there, I thought was so good because you kind of brought it back to a very early question you had around self-love. Is self-love really the, the heart of heart of a lot of this. And I think, yes, to kind of go all the way back there, it self-love is both the way that I prevent depression and the way I treat it. You know, it is, it's the self-love that I do, that I take care of myself to prevent it. And then it's the self-love I give myself when I have it and an understanding I give myself and other things. So, you know, it made me think of that because yeah, it's a, that's a pretty big component of for me. And I think a big piece for me also with it is allowing it just to allowing the depression to be there, not and sort of in two ways. One way is just allowing it to be there because it's uncomfortable and unpleasant. Mm-hmm. But the deeper, more egoic allowing is allowing me somebody who should be so evolved interviewing 300 people sitting all these silent retreats allowing me to still have that very human failing is another thing I have to work at that I don't start going, you shouldn't be this way. It shouldn't be this way. You should be better. You should be fixed. (laughs) The should and should not monster. When it, That's rear, right. when yes. it rears its ugly head, man, I'm going to link this in the show notes as well as your podcast and, and, and specifically the interview that you were talking about. What was the gentleman that you interviewed, Adishanti? Adishanti. Yeah, Adyashanti. we've interviewed him several times, but yeah, they're great. He's, he's, you'd, I think you'd really resonate with what he has to say. I think you'd like him a lot. Well, I loved his downloads through you. I mean, we, we interviewed um, Dr. Judd Brewer on the show. You've had him yeah. on. You've had, you've had some powerful people that really are, are cultivating this curiosity and honestly fortifying a safety zone for people to explore what the hell we're doing here on planet earth. You know, like we're, <laughs> we're all trying to figure that out, man. So I just have a couple more questions for you. And, yeah, and the yeah. first one is this curiosity piece. How do we set up our lives so that curiosity can grow and also our curiosity? Curiosity is protected. That is a really good question that I don't know that I have an answer to. And I, have, um, I like to ask questions like that because I, yeah. I think of them in the moment, right here, yeah. right now. No, it's a know? great, it's a great question. I think for me, it is like a. I will, I will call curiosity a value. And like a lot of our values, sometimes we need to reflect on them from time to time and we need to remember that it is a value and we need to try and remember to bring it in. There are times mm-hmm. that curiosity comes really easily to me, right? Yeah. And that I'm just naturally curious. And then there are other times that I have to remind myself to be curious. Like being in an emotional pain is a time to remind myself to be curious. Um, and, you know, for me, I, and maybe maybe one of the ways I allow curio- – that I give curiosity – um, I encourage it in my life as I follow it when it shows up. Yeah. I just, if it's there, I'm like, well, I'm interested in that. I'm curious. I, you know, several months ago, it was like table tennis. That was the thing. Yeah. It's like, well, that's ridiculous. I'm a, you know, I'm a, I'm a grown man. And yet I was like, that's what it was. So that's what I went and did. You know, I went and trained for a while with a, with a table tennis coach. Cause that I just follow what, <sighs> 
lights me up. Table tennis just, is no joke, man. I mean, that's like an athletic feat. I've seen these people really on TV. Is. They just get after it's, it. It's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I use that as a, that's the sort of thing that, that part yeah. of me would be like, no, we are not going to do that. That is, yes. that is, but I just go, you know what? That's what's lighting me up right now. That's what's interesting me. I'm going to trust that and go. Man, I remember reading Stephen Pressfield's book, um, The War of Art, and he was making this this connection between we're, we're, we're so spoiled that we even get to pontificate about why we're here. We're so spoiled that we even get to have like, this is why it's so beautiful and so meaningful to have this conversation, not only about the one you feed, but just the fact that we have time, the, the people that are here with us, Eric, listening and, and being in this conversation, we've come in this, in this human evolution where we used to have horse-drawn cart and buggy. And we were making bricks out of bricks for houses and rocks. And now now, like we're talking on a computer and like, who knows what's going to happen in the future. I just get the sense. And I'm curious how you feel about this. I get the sense that we are almost like an early twenties. If if humanity and human evolution was, was a lifetime and we looked at it as a lifetime, I almost feel like we're 20 or 21 years old. We've been through enough of this shit. We understand that it's okay uh, to treat people with love and it's okay to treat ourselves with love because we're not purely in survival anymore. Anymore. But yet there's still these underpinnings on an economic level and on a, a really societal energetic level where the, this illusion of separation is still preached. You know, how do you feel about where we are in human evolution right now? Well, assuming that we don't drive ourselves off an ecological cliff, I think we are extraordinarily early. I think call, saying that we're 20 or 21 might even be um, – might even be overstating our age. What age do you it's, feel like we might be? Well, you know, I'm I'm only doing this. I just I recently interviewed a guy named David Christian who does something called he calls it big history. And he's basically surveying history from the Big Bang all the way through human time, trying to put it into one story, one book, which is a pretty remarkable thing to do. Um and when when you look at things from that scale, you go, wow, okay, well the universe is fourteen point six billion years old. Look at how much newer we are and and how much we're how fast we're changing because to compare who we are today with humans of 50,000 years ago almost doesn't even seem like a reasonable comparison anymore. Um, And so what I I think it's there was a there was a fact in that book I found fascinating. He said that um, he said, all right, 14.6 billion years. Just pretend that, you know, it was. it was 14.6 years ago the universe started, right? That mean what that you put all that into time, what you would then call the fossil fuel revolution, since that started, which is causing obviously real potential huge problems, that was two minutes ago. And so you think about how fast everything is changing for us. It's, you know, I don't know how old we are, but I think we're disoriented. <laughs> Okay. So maybe we're approaching like being a teenager. <laughs> that, that might be a <laughs> right. little closer on the timeline. Eric, yeah. this has been such a great conversation, man. We have to have you back again to get more into the nuts and bolts of behavior change. Cause I feel like where you and I went was an incredible place, um, <laughs> but it was really, it was really uh, of service in multiple ways. Listen to this podcast again, reach out to Eric on social. How can people connect with you? Uh, one you feed.net is kind of where, you know, you can find the podcast, you can find the coaching, you can find our social network stuff. It's all there. It's just spelled out O N E Y O U F E E D.net. 
And we'll link all of these incredible interviews you've had. Eric Tivers, you've also had, oh, you've had Lauren Zander on the show. So Lauren's been on the show a couple of times. A lot of the people that I think we really want to learn from are the people yeah. that have been through that discussion, you know, that parable multiple times in their lives yeah. when the moments really matter most. And as parting guidance for us, if, if we're experiencing right now, if somebody listening is experiencing the, the dark wolf and the, the white wolf, the good, the bad, the fear, the love, how can you speak to them from a lens of wellness? What, what can you tell them about your definition of wellness? In other words, what does wellness mean to you in those moments where we choose to feed the wolf? Another great question. I would say that, you know, for me, wellness is, it's not a, it's not a static point, but I do tend to believe that if we look most of the time at what we are, where we're spending our time and where we're putting our attention, we have a pretty good gut sense whether that feels like it's leading us towards wellness or not. And, um, and then we can always change, we can always change that even if it's only a little bit, like a lot of people will say, well, I can't control what I think, which is absolutely true. Right. Mm -hmm. But I can, I can redirect my thoughts three times instead of one time. I can redirect them 10 times instead of one time. Right. Like I, I believe there's always a positive step forward for us wherever we are, no matter what's happening. I'm, I'm not one of those like, oh, you can be anything you want to be kind of people, but I believe we can always improve always take a step towards greater wellness and wholeness. I love that you said with your last word, wholeness. Um, that's, I think, the recognition of the oneness, the wholeness, and, and whether someone's spiritual or analytical, I think we all know that guidance system lights up, Eric, like you said, when we just have the inner knowing. We know when something's true. We know when we want to move towards a direction. So if you guys are feeling uh, that knowing, go to oneyoufeed.net. There's books, there's programs, there's... Uh, Eric's program about the one you feed clarity process and um, make sure that you check out his work. So Eric, thank you for coming on the show, man. Deep bow to the conversations you're having, the space you're holding for this higher intelligence so we can understand what we're doing here and and how we can actually live our, live our life well. So thanks for coming on the show, man. Yeah. Deep bow right back to you. I, um, you're really good at this. Those were, that was a, that was a great conversation. Thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Feels good to receive that. Okay. You guys, until we see you again, wishing you love and wellness. Hey, thanks for listening to the show, my friend. Everything you learned on this podcast starts with your morning practices. So from over 300 world-class guests, we pulled together six simple yet powerful morning practices down into a 21 minute system guaranteed to increase your vibration and the way that you feel every day. Get this free powerful guide over at wellnessforce.com forward slash M21. And if you love this show, share it with somebody. Share it with somebody that you love or that you care about. You can support the show easily by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Just go to wellnessforce.com forward slash review. Or if you're on your phone, just tap it, hit the link in purple that says review this podcast. And the journey does not stop here. We're continuing this discovering process in our private Facebook group over at wellnessforce.com forward slash group. You can be a part of it. You already are. All you have to do is join us at wellnessforce.com forward slash group. And I will welcome you at the door. Now go out into your life and live your life well. And until I see you again real soon, I'm wishing you love and wellness.